And welcome once more to the Week in IndyCar and the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. This is the third and final. You have reached, you're starting to reach the end of your destination. Q&A portion coming out of a packed weekend in Portland where all kind of nonsense happened that led to a heck of a bunch of questions, plus some news items as well that you wanted clarity on. Lots of great stuff as usual. So we're going to get into these here. Close this week's overall package of Week in IndyCar content brought to you by the Justice Brothers, brought to you by TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets, and our friends at Cooper Tires. And just because I know your ears might be getting a little worn out, just going to do the intro here for you. No outro. So when you hear the music start to fade in, just know you have, to your absolute credit, made it to the end of this week's journey. All right, picking up again at 11.55 a.m. Wednesday morning. Sam Yoder, your question of who would win in a full-on brawl with the entire field of IndyCar drivers, definitely willpower. That's my pick. As I mentioned before the break last night, well worth listening to the conversation with Jack Harvey. We had a little bit of fun with this one. Go to Pete Hernandez, who says, Marshall, do you think there's any chance the 2022 IndyCar chassis could incorporate a fighter jet-style canopy as opposed to the aero screen? I think the canopy solution would offer better driver protection and would look really cool. I don't know if they would go as far, Pete, who sent this in on Facebook, by the way, with a complete cockpit enclosure. I don't know if they would go that far. What I do believe will happen for sure is unlike what's coming for next year, which is a bolt-on solution to a car that was never designed to have such a thing. Going to look a little unblended. Maybe that's the way to put it. I think what we're going to see in 22, I know what we're going to see in 22, will be something that indeed is designed from the outset to incorporate an aero screen, something canopy-esque that looks proper, that looks like it is part of the car compared to something bolted onto a car that was never dreamed, never imagined to hold such a thing. So I just think visually the gain we're going to get in a couple of years' time is something where the entire tub, the driver cockpit cell, if you want to call it that, truly was designed from the outset to incorporate this. So I just hope it looks a little cleaner, a little smoother. The side shots, for example, of the current car with the aero screen in place. Again, reason we're doing it, completely valid. This is a, a meaningless nitpick, but it just doesn't look that awesome to me just because we have a car and an aero screen just with a lot of diverging lines that don't blend. So looking forward to what they come up with here in a few years' time. Let's go to our man, Jaime Macias. Hey there, Jaime. He says, if you think this current point system wins uh, with consistency over mediocrity, everyone scores points. He says, with the CART era championship, title would already be finished with Newgarden at 192 points, Scott Dixon at 163, Alexander Rossi at 162, Simon Pagino at 154, 
and willpower at 129. I love it when folks go back and apply old point systems just to see how things might be different. So good to know that uh, good old New Garden would actually be a champ in the old cart era. Going to go to Reddit with user BTCC1721. He says, as a British fan of IndyCar, do you ever think we may have the chance to see the series visit us over here again in the UK? It's a bit of my standard answer, and I it's just because there's no better answer to give. If one of the UK circuits decides that it wants IndyCar and is willing to pay for the pleasure then I would say there's an absolute possibility. Uh, IndyCar just simply deciding it's going to go to the UK, pay for it themselves, or any other international destination, not going to happen. Uh, There's just not enough money coming in to allow IndyCar to pick and choose where it wants to go, fund its way there, and just do it for the sake of being there. So like Australia, like name any other venue, if we do see IndyCar leave, North America, it's going to be because there is a promoter, sponsors that promoter has acquired, someone with a lot of money who just wants to see IndyCar on their home turf paying for the opportunity. I would love this, though. <laughs> I would absolutely love it, though. Love uh, love the U.K. and its motor racing circuits. Let's go to Greg Liver's Edge and also Ed Roberts and... Reddit user Ryanex will have a similar question. Greg says, why was the initial yellow flag from the opening lap incident so long? I believe it was 12 laps under caution. Ed Roberts says, can IndyCar provide any information regarding why the field was reordered the way it was after the opening turn crash? And Ryan says, what happened with the field reordering after the first incident? What order was IndyCar trying to get them into? To Greg's point, I think with a number of affected cars that they had, at least from memory, I don't believe we saw four or five tow trucks descend on turn one to lift them out of the way. So I think we just had a bit of a resource thing, first of all. A lot of cars to clean up, pick up and lift, since there were many that could not continue on their own. So I think we had that as one thing that definitely added some time. And then also the point that Ed and Ryan mentioned is the reordering. So if you happen to catch our hamburger and french fry show after the race, Seb, who was affected by the reordering, was wondering, what the hell? Uh, I had to go through the chicane uh, and use the little slow, little right, left, right to get through to avoid the incident. Uh, Why am I being penalized for not being able to go through the corner as intended? So as usual, I reached out to our man, Kyle Novak, IndyCar race director, and said, hey, could you help explain this? And so he sent along a very detailed answer, knowing that a number of you are definitely wanting to know. So here's the answer sent in by Kyle Novak. He says, race control, quote, freezes the order at the moment of a full course yellow, an FCY, is declared, meaning that all cars are entitled to retain position at the instant the FCY is issued. Cars that are involved in the incident are not entitled to keep their position until they are again able to maintain appropriate pace. Other series use methodologies such as reverting back to the last green timeline crossed by each car to set the proper order for the sake of expediency. However, this method may omit 
a legitimate green flag pass that occurred between timelines seconds before an FCY. Each time an FCY is issued, our timing systems begin tracking any order anomalies that occur between the last green timeline and the next yellow timeline. Race control then may go to video replay and cross-reference the timestamp of the FCY to verify whether a legitimate pass occurred during a green condition or an illegitimate pass that occurred following the FCY, which would then require a position reversal. Kyle goes on to say, while the previously mentioned reorder procedure is standard for the majority of FCY situations, the unique nature of Portland Turn 1 requires race control to apply additional doctrines in determining the proper order. First, the Turn 1 runoff is the only runoff on the entire calendar that cars can conceivably pass through to avoid an incident and gain time against cars that use the appropriate route through the circuit. It says, compare Portland Turn 1 to Toronto or Long Beach Turn 1. Clearly, a car that finds itself on the runoff in either of those would face a large time loss. Second, and perhaps most important to this situation, is the doctrine of incident in progress, which essentially states the cars involved in an incident are subordinate to cars not involved in an incident. Since we had cars that used the circuit and avoided the incident altogether, cars that use the escape road to shortcut the course to avoid the incident were thus classified as involved in an incident in progress and subordinate to cars not involved in the incident. Given those factors, we set our order using the following hierarchy. First, cars that cross timing lines I2A and I2B on the racetrack in turn one and turn two were given priority over cars that used the escape road and were classified as involved in the incident. Next, we used timing line I1 to set the order for cars that used the escape road since they would have not crossed I2A or timing line I2B and given race control an appropriate electronic order. Finally, lowest order priority was given to cars most involved in the incident such as cars that spun or were damaged as a result of contact. Simplified terms for the cars that weren't involved in the crash yet were able to go around the turn one chicane as intended, they got reordering priority over those that had to go through the escape road. And I think that's the thing that definitely pissed off my French fry, Mr. Bourdais, uh, since, as he said, and I can't disagree, the track was blocked to the right. There is no way to take the intended uh, route around the corner. Knowing all of that, and to come back to the question from Ed and Ryan as to why it took so long to get the field reordered, why did the overall yellow take so long? I'll just mention that in trying to be very authoritative and detailed in his response, Kyle used 461 words. So I'm not laughing at him or anything like that. I'm just saying to fully explain how all this shook out, how this was arrived at, what happened, 
and then to get to the reordering necessary. That's the length of a lot of stories you might read on racer.com. So you can imagine that up in the control tower, I definitely have sympathy for the fact that, yeah, this wasn't a really quick and straightforward thing. There's a lot of information to parse through and then determine the exact order of how the reordering was going to take place and then to call for that reordering on top of what Greg mentioned uh, regarding the overall duration that it took, knowing that there were a lot of truly stranded and stricken cars that needed to be lifted and taken out of the way and then come back and grab some more. So was not great thanks to what happened with the big calamity to open the race. I'm not claiming any grand knowledge as to how many uh, tow trucks were ready. I would just say that when we come back next year for the race, I'm quite positive there will probably be double the amount sitting (laughs) just to uh, to the right or left of drivers in turn one and prepared to go and haul a lot of cars out, hopefully at a higher rate of speed. Let's go to Sam Yoder again. He says, with the obvious news being the removal of Pocono and addition of Richmond, are there any other interesting points you noticed that are flying under the radar for the 2020 IndyCar schedule? Indeed, Sam, there is one, and it is the Laguna Seca IMSA and Laguna Seca IndyCar Weekends continuing to be back-to-back. A lot was said. I know I definitely have opinions about this year's race, with this being back-to-back, and this potentially damaging both series, or maybe IMSA more than IndyCar, since IMSA has never been a really big draw in uh, since it was reborn in 2014. And the concern was, well, hmm, if folks are having to pick and choose If folks are not able to just buy tickets for both and are having to make hard racing decisions budget-wise, which one would they pick? I think more folks would pick seeing IndyCar for the first time than maybe IMSA, and could that hurt? I'm sorry, would pick IndyCar, and could that hurt? Would that hurt IMSA? Learned from speaking with uh, the track manager, Tim McGrain, that indeed... This Speed Weeks thing that they've created now, promotion they're doing, selling tickets, selling an experience for folks to come down and actually enjoy two consecutive weekends of racing there, has seen a big uptick in sales for IMSA. So where I thought we would have this year one clash, 2019, with them back-to-back, and then there would be a lot of work going on to try and find another spot on the calendar where IndyCar was clear Well, indeed, uh, I believe based on the success Laguna Seca has seen in terms of ticket sales, they've said, no, we actually like this. This is actually turning out to be a benefit. So was surprised to see the continuation of back-to-back race weekends, IMSA being directly followed by IndyCar again in 2020, Sam. But at least according to the track, this thing that I thought would be a problem is not. It's actually helping to drive tickets. So pretty cool, I would say. Let's go back to Reddit from user Bob 4-5- First off, it was great to see you and the French Fry doing your thing at Portland this weekend. So as I could tell, Sebastian was really excited to be with you based on his body language and constant smile. Yeah, I really enjoyed seeing my man. He says, anyway, there's a rumor swirling around Saturday morning before 
the qualifying broadcast that Connor Daly signed a full-time deal to drive for someone next year. Both Robin Miller and Paul Tracy referenced this weekend that Connor was close to signing a contract with someone. Also, the end of the broadcast on the post-race coverage, Robin Miller mentioned that there would be more news announced this week about driver lineups and team confirmations. Are you able to comment on how true these rumors are? Closes by saying, thanks, MP, for the great podcast. Best wishes to you and your wife. Thank you, thank you. Um, I mean, Robin and I share, I believe, everything with one another, just about everything. So if I have a brewing news story, some sort of brewing, breaking news story, I should say, um, you know, he's never surprised about it because I keep him abreast, vice versa. And often we will say, you know, hey, I'm working on this thing. What do you know about it? Or what have you heard? And try and, you know, cover off and share with one another so that knowing we are working for the same outlet, we want to give that outlet the best content possible. So I just mention that because with Robin mentioning that there could be some confirmations this week and such, I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to still see them this week. There could be. I would say next week probably a little bit stronger possibility for sure but yeah there are definitely some confirmations coming about teams drivers their plans for next year so that is indeed coming and i think we're going to see a number of folks try and get their good news in before we are done with the season in monterey as for connor i haven't heard anything about something being signed heard about some things moving in super positive directions, but I have yet to hear anything about the signature actually being on a piece of paper. So can't tell you if that has changed or if this is changing as we speak, but hoping obviously there's some great news here to announce regarding young Mr. Daly and his future. Stay here for a little bit in Reddit land. We're going to go to L Jones Arena. MP, it was great to see you do the live podcast in Portland. Thanks. Uh, it says, here's an important 2020 season idea to ponder. If Fernando Alonso races the Indy 500 with McLaren, Spam, in partnership with his team, the Fernando Alonso Racing Team, we'd be looking at a team called Spam Fart. For hashtag me personally, I'd wear that T-shirt proudly. Oh, I love my listeners. I'm not even, I mean, for real, uh, I, I know that I've just stolen Bill Simmons' long-standing line from his uh, his mailbag. I love my readers. I love my listeners. It's the same thing. Uh, you guys are awesome. And yes, I know that, you know, I'm 48 years old, but as most, I believe most women have learned, despite the physical age of men, most of us still have that seven-year-old boy inside of us that just giggles at fart jokes. So, yeah, I'm that guy. My wife knows it. She accepts it. She doesn't like it, but she realizes there's some compromises she definitely has to make in being with me. And one of them is having L. Jones Arena send in the idea that we might be talking about spam fart on track next year at the Indy 500, and that just tickles me quite a bit. Let's go to another Reddit user, business-travel. I love the names here. 
I hope you had a great weekend up at Portland and that your wife is doing well. Thank you. It says, my question stems from the news that Robin Miller broke and talked about during the first Friday, Friday practice session at Portland. He mentioned that Chip Ganassi Racing was looking to add a third car to their roster for the 2020 season. Do you have any idea who Chip and CGR, i.e. Mike Hole, would be looking at for adding to a third car for next year? There seems to still be bit of a driver market out there with a few teams to go after for next year, um, which I also confirmed at the end of our coverage of Sunday's racer report. What kind of driver do you think CGR is looking to add uh, along with Scott and Felix? Uh, it would have to be someone experienced and competitive as in not another rookie driver. Uh, and as always, thanks for your hard work. Best wishes to you and your wife. Thank you. Thank you. Um, not that it matters, but uh, I believe you're referring to Robin referring to the story that I broke about CGR looking to work with a team to support a third car to provide some sort of Andretti technology style technical support. And I do know that the team would embrace the idea of running a third car truly in-house, um, Got a definite confirmation of that over the weekend. But at least for what they're looking at, and this is honestly just referring back to the story that I wrote about this. As of now, the Chip Ganassi Racing Ford Performance IMSA GT Le Mans program is not only coming to an end here in about a month at Petit Le Mans, but the team does not have another manufacturer in line to keep the sports car team going. And so with a sports car team, that is, I would say in terms of personnel, basically identical, this two car team, that's more or less identical in size to Ganassi's IndyCar program just means there's a lot of great people who've done a lot of really impressive things, winning for Ford, representing Ford over the last four years, who at the end of this year, would be out of work and potentially out of employment. And so what the team has been doing, and I don't just mean sports car, I just mean Chip Ganassi racing as a whole is trying to be very smart with their planning. So you could either say, well, we're just going to double down, keep trying to find a new manufacturer and run a sports car program for them next year. And if that doesn't happen, well, then we got to shut this whole thing down and let everybody go. Or you could say, Hey, we've got a lot of talented people who says it has to be sports cars. Also knowing that the vast majority of the folks who've been a part of the Ford chip Ganassi sports car program came over directly from the team's IndyCar program, knowing that they were a four car effort downsized to the timing of this worked out fairly well in that you had a lot of people able to move directly over from the IndyCar operation to the sports car program. And so what they've been trying to do, dear business-travel, is find a way to keep those folks on the payroll after the Ford program goes away. Know that there are still some possibilities. I wouldn't say high percentage possibilities, but possibilities nonetheless for the team to continue in sports cars to do that, they would have to take over an existing program because here 
at the beginning of September, there's no way they would have the time to start something brand new, get it up and running and competitive, and then go race, actually go turn up to the first official test, what, four months from now, the beginning of January at the Roar Before the 24. So if they were to continue in sports cars, it would be taking over a program. I know that there have been discussions about that may be happening. I wouldn't put that as a high percentage. That all comes back to the main point here of, well, hey, there seem to be more people looking for opportunities in IndyCar than there are cars or seats that are just ready to jump right into. What if we were to dust off one of our many chassis that we have and say, hey, well, here's a car you could step into if you bring a full budget and someone who, as you rightly mentioned, would add to the quality of the program, not just be someone paying for a ride that had no hope. We could do that. We could be that third full-time car for you, or if you're just looking for really solid engineering support, uh, maybe some crew support as well, excellent pit stops and so on. We have a wide variety because we have a lot of really good people that we can insert into your program. So I believe that's what Robin was referring to. Uh, So somewhere in there, I would be very surprised if we do not read about at some point in time during the off season that Chip Ganassi Racing has formed a technical alliance with the team and they are inserting engineers, maybe some crew members as well, all the way to, hey, we're going to be three cars again in-house next year. Uh, I believe one of those two things could absolutely happen. I'm aware of at least one driver that has had conversations with that team. I know that because I gave that driver the correct phone numbers to call because they asked for them. So there's something something brewing here. And looking at how competitive Dixon has been this year with Felix alongside him, Felix now who's just really... <laughs> The only thing left for Felix to do is get his first win. That's exactly what the team has been hoping to have. I'd say they're in a really good position to feel like they could bring on a third car and not have that disrupt what they have going. Let's go to another Reddit user here with one of my favorite usernames. I forgot my password. Okay. Says with Coda taking the last April date two years in a row, Is there any hope for Barber to get back to its late April or May position? He says the grounds just aren't at their peak that early. Uh, At least for what we had this year, Coda was late March. So not totally clear on that. Uh, Barber, as for that shifting, knowing that we've had this early April date here for a little while, part of me thinks this is something where IndyCar and the organizers there really want to just lock in on that being something folks can count on. Let's go to Redder, Reddit user Redder. Reddit user Minardi F1, this is me. There's been a lot of talk about how great Michael Cannon is with young drivers. Other than Santino Ferrucci, I know he worked with Robbie Doorknobs, a.k.a. Robert Dornbost, in 2007, but who else has he worked with? Well, most recently, that would be Ed Jones and his rookie campaign, which really impressed everybody. Uh, The Peoples, 
2017 Indy 500 Rookie of the Year. And also the prime example, that being, granted, he wasn't a, a quote, rookie, but he was definitely young and still early in his career, that being A.J. Allmendinger, when he showed up at the Players' Forsyth team in 2006 and reeled off five wins with Michael. Uh, That was super impressive. So, yeah, I think as I mentioned last week on the show, I don't know, might have been two weeks earlier, I don't remember. I think Michael really thrives in a situation where with a young driver who doesn't come in with a bunch of preconceived notions and needs and is willing to work with an engineer and develop a car that not only is good, but isn't just set to a very strict set of parameters that that driver carries with them at every team, which you often can find with some veterans. I think with that little more collaborative freedom minded approach, Michael and young drivers then tend to really thrive. So yeah, it's been, uh, and I'm sure there are a few others I'm forgetting, but yeah, he's done a lot of good work with young drivers for sure. Santino being the latest, let's jump over to Facebook. Got a couple of questions here along the same lines, both calendar related from Doug Noop says, Marshall, what do you think the thought process was for IndyCar and Richmond to choose a weekend where IMSA has an endurance race, making it so the drivers can't go race at the Glen. So I can't imagine the drivers or teams are happy about that for hashtag me personally. Great use. It sucks because I'm directly in between both races and have loved going to the six hours of the Glen the last few years, but I'll be going to Richmond and probably no IMSA races. Now, Mike Kristoff adds, MP regarding the 2020 schedule, do the IndyCar schedule makers need to be asked to keep conflicts away from IMSA's North American Endurance Championship events the way they made sure COTA didn't conflict with Sebring next year? Or do they naturally understand how many of their drivers participate? Also, let's make your dream of super-duper Sebring and just add an IndyCar race on Thursday night under the lights. That's a great idea, Mike. Um, I would just throw this in, guys, and it's it's just a reality. While the Salins Six Hours of the Glen is a glorious event, truly glorious, love Watkins Glen, it's six hours. It's part of the four NAEC championship, four race NAEC championship. Starts off with Daytona, 24, Sebring, 12, Watkins Glen, 6, and then closes with Petit Le Mans. It's 10 hours at road. Atlanta. Get the conflict. Totally understand that. I know that IMSA team owners who also play an IndyCar or vice versa, certainly not super happy to see that. Far less of a concern, though, than Sebring, simply because, as we have seen for many years, while IndyCar drivers will sign up for NAEC rounds, We've often found that even when there was no conflict, they weren't needed for Watkins Glen because it is something that two drivers can handle without any real concern compared to having that IndyCar driver as the third. So know it's a conflict from a fan standpoint. Know that there are some team owners who might not be super happy about this. Thankfully, Watkins and Richmond aren't too far away from a travel standpoint, but I don't foresee this really impacting things for drivers in terms of financials and opportunities in the same way that a Sebring conflict would. Because if you're not going to be there for Sebring, they're not going to look at you, period. Let's go to Frederick Norling. It says, MP, 
Who do you want to see filling ABC spots with AJ Foyt racing next season? And can you give your view on silly season as of today? And finally, as a Swede, I really want to find out if you believe Marcus Erickson will find a home for next season. I don't have a great answer for who I want to see fill the spot on the uh, ABC once holding on to, once having spots on the car situation. I've heard, not saying it's accurate, but I've heard that if Tony Kanon returns, the number of sponsors that have been loyal supporters of his could end up just simply being the primaries on the car for the year knowing that ABC has said they'll come back for the Indy 500, I believe ABC would just be doing that with one car potentially. I don't honestly know. Um, it's not necessarily a case of who I'd like to see. I'd, I would just like to see sponsors filling in. So I might have mentioned somewhere. I don't know. I might have done it in this episode and forgotten already. They're going to be in a tough space. Running at the back of the field for as long as they have it just makes it hard to justify for any sponsor to come on board and join in older days. You'd have a sponsor sign on with one of the smaller teams, lesser performing teams. There would be an acceptance. All right. Hey, we'll be there with you. You'll grow. It's going to take a while. We're coming along for the journey. We know you're going to come good in a couple of years from now. We're confident. I don't know of a lot of sponsors who are willing to give that much runway to a team to start delivering. So really fortunate for ABC that came on in 20, 2005. Yeah. Really fortunate on the timing of when that happened. I just think it's going to be a challenge to get major sponsors to join in getting smaller associate sponsors. Definitely think that can happen. Who knows if some of those could be spun into bigger as for silly season. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, I don't want to spend an hour on it here in this episode. Robin Miller and I did film after the Portland race a silly season video. And so we'll try and get that up next week. Bit of a filler between the uh, three weeks uh, set between Portland and Laguna Seca. As for Marcus, I do believe he will find a home for next year. As I mentioned earlier, he does bring some good corporate backing with him uh, he has some pretty strong supporters and on top of being a talented driver who has not had a great year uh, i think folks are going i think that there are enough folks who realize there is something there and the fact that he can help from a financial end or his sponsors can it's going to put him <clears throat> honestly put him in one of the finer positions to find a home next year so Provided he wants to be here, provided that there is a strong willingness, there's a number of teams that would welcome someone like Marcus who can drive and can also help solve some of the uh, the budgetary items as well. Let's go to Norm Nelson. Norm says, great to meet you Saturday. Thanks for the live podcast. Thanks to all that you do and much love to you and yours. Thanks, Norm. Genuinely great to meet you and thanks so much for just all the warmth and love. It was, a, it was a true blast doing the podcast there. He says, I heard Will Power say something over the radio with him apologizing to the team for not building enough heat in the brakes before one of the restarts. Is this an issue with all brakes or prevalent with carbon-carbon brakes, that being carbon discs, carbon pads? I assume they are more likely to lock up if they are not warmed up looking for any insight. That is absolutely the case, Norm. 
The thing that makes carbon fiber brakes so amazing from a performance standpoint is they generate a crazy amount of heat and friction, something where, just want to think of it like glue, uh, once you get heat into them, it just, it's like super glue. I mean, the thing, everything comes to an immediate stop by comparison to steel brakes. And so that's why folks love carbon brakes for their much deeper braking capabilities. They're also phenomenally light in comparison to steel. So you get a really good vehicular performance improvement from that as well. You are spinning lighter things, therefore things spin up faster, etc. So that's all good. But yes, carbon brakes are heat-based creatures. They don't work at moderate temperature, decent temperature. You need to get them good and hot for them to start to come into their operating range. Once they're in that range, they are fearsome. So what Will would have been talking about is not getting them hot enough leading up to the restart so that by the time he got to turn one, they were ready to do their super glue impression. Let's go to Twitter here. Christopher Davies, would it be possible to turn Indy Lights into an equivalent of NASCAR's Xfinity series by making the next lights chassis have a bunch of common parts with the next IndyCar chassis? Basically, just different wings, wheels, and engines. Have them run every race with Indy. Been mentioned a number of times, Christopher, and I love including this question because it's always a good one. Would just throw in that whereas it's felt like an option in the past, right? Hey, it'd be neat if you did that, but meh, you know, not necessarily a, a need. I would say we need to look at what's coming next year with IndyCar's aero screen as really a overall shift to IndyCar, not just technology, but just the way we think of an IndyCar. And as a result, with Indy Lights being the closest step to IndyCar and the fact that the 2015 Dallara IL-15 by 2022 will be old enough, I'd be very surprised, Christopher, if when we do get the new IndyCar chassis in 22 with an integrated aero screen, whatever it is, if there was not an Indy Lights chassis, same year, I don't know, maybe a year before, not sure when. I think, though, since Indy Lights pretty darn fast, cracking 200 miles an hour at the speedway now for the Freedom 100, I'd be very surprised if we did not have the Indy Lights chassis mirroring in many ways the next IndyCar chassis. So could Delara be producing both at the same time and finding ways to have some carryovers, some things that are common between the two? I think it'd be pretty smart. Only concern here, obviously, is cost. The issue with Indy Lights, the reason that we have very small grids, it's not because people don't see value in it. The amount of drivers that graduate from Indy Lights to IndyCar in recent years has been phenomenal. It's just costs. Uh, it's too high. It's not that anyone's just doing it for fun and keeping the costs at high. It's just what it is. So I love the idea. I do think that whatever the next generation lights chassis, whenever that comes along, it's going to look a lot like the IndyCar chassis with some form of integrated aero screen. Would love to see if they can find a way to have commonality 
but not if it's going to drive prices up so much for Indie Lights team owners that we get down to a four-car grid or five-car grid. So, yeah, if it can happen with costs being maintained, uh, if not reduced, then I think you're, we are definitely on to something. Go to Lenny Mishik, who says, Why can't you alternate drivers for the hamburger and french fry videos? I know it would be French. It wouldn't be French, but I would like some variation. Well, i got to admit, this question that Lenny sent in, let's say, caught me by surprise. I'm sure there's some folks who don't like Sebastian Bourdais or don't like me and don't watch as a result. For those that do, I would just say that I think the reason that I do these with Sebastian and not others has nothing to do with any team affiliation manufacturer. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there's no alignment on any kind of corporate side or anything between racer and Dale coin racing or any, any, anything. It's just simply that Seb and I are good friends and I think have some good chemistry, fun chemistry. So it's not as if I wouldn't have a blast doing these with pretty much any of the other drivers. It's just, if you've seen them, you might figure out that we kind of know each other well and therefore have some fun doing what we do. So uh, that's why we don't have variation, uh, because it's the hamburger and french fry show. Let's go to Bullfrog. Not too happy that Pocono is off the schedule, but I guess I am as much to blame as anyone since I never uh, could never find my way to Long Pond, Pennsylvania. Where, if anywhere, is the next candidate for a super speedway venue if the series has no intention of ever going back to Pocono? Great question. I don't have an answer. We've heard rumors of could Chicago land, the old, what we call Chicago land, be considered. I have heard this, and I've heard that in part of the discussions about IndyCar possibly going back to Pocono, can't say if it's real, but did hear that there was some sort of requirement that there would need to be a significant upgrade to fencing and that the number to do that, the cost to do that was significant. Can't tell you if that's true or not. Did hear it from a good, good source, but nonetheless, I would say that that might be a thing that could certainly sway IndyCar's decisions to come back. I also know that IndyCar being very self-conscious, like most racing series, does not want any more publicity about why are they using Home Depot supplies to repair the fence. So somewhere in there, I think going back to Pocono could be a thing. I just believe that there would have to be some facilities upgrades for that to be considered. After that, I honestly don't know where they might go for another super speedway. There are lots of options just in terms of speedways that are ready to pay for IndyCar to be there. That's the thing I don't know a lot about there being something real and actionable. Let's go to our pal Carlos Villalobos. So this is Elton Julian called AJ Foyt in order to merge both teams. Dragon Speed would add the engineering knowledge. Funny you mention that, Carlos. No, I haven't heard anything about that, but I have heard uh, this morning, late morning, and I need to chase this down and confirm it, that the team did part ways after Portland 
with its technical director slash Tony Kanon's race engineer, Eric Cowden. So not sure if that's true or not. I heard that from someone in the paddock who would know, but uh, since that came in while I've been recording here, I still need to go check that out. So engineering knowledge is certainly the thing that we know that they have needed more of. Not sure that Dragon Speed, though, would be the one to bring that since they have, what, three IndyCar races to their name so far? All right, we're going to go to Ryan Terpstra, who says, can we get a bowling pin with Jack Harvey engraved on it and hand it out to Ryan on a right Laguna Seca? He owned it, but I think a little more roasting is in order. You know, I can't disagree, Ryan. Um, I would just say that as a guy, though, that is struck so often by the cartoon anvil, I think Ryan would want to take that anvil and give it to someone else. Being the guy to be another person's cartoon anvil, <laughs> being the uh, the embodiment of a cartoon anvil for Jack Harvey, not dropping from the sky, I guess, just coming in from the side. Yeah, I don't know. There's all kinds of, of weird things going on here. Ben Cohen says, rumor has it you're a decent race engineer at Richmond. If you got the call to sit in that seat for next year's return to Richmond, who, from the current paddock, are you choosing as your driver? He said, side note, great to have you back at the track. Uh, Thanks for everything you've done during a challenging time for your family. We are appreciative of all you do for us fans. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for everyone who said similar things. It's, I never know how to react to such things because, uh, yeah, it it might sound like a cop-out, but it's true. I'm the son of a mechanic. I do the, I'm fortunate to do the thing that I love. Um, and it's, I love the fact that other people enjoy the things that I do, but it's just, I don't know, man. Um, I'm just a kid from pretty basic (laughs) origins. So it's weird to have folks say thank you and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, now I was an assistant engineer on the car that earned pole at the 2001, Richmond IRL race, that being with Sam Schmidt Motorsports, not the full race engineer. Um, That was Tim, I am forgetting his last name, right? Tim Neff. Tim Neff was the primary race engineer. So we'll credit Tim for that poll along with Jacques Lazier. Uh, But if I did get to engineer someone, that's a great, I honestly haven't really thought of that one, Ben. So I'm going to take a little bit of a shortcut, pull up on the interwebs here, the list of all the drivers, and let me think about this. Who would I like to engineer if I had a one-off return at Richmond next year? Uh, ta, 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 looking through the list, who would it be? I mean, I guess if I said Max Chilton, that'd be kind of dickish. I don't know if he's going to want to return next year to ovals with an arrow screen in front of him, so we won't go with Max. Um, I would love, yeah. I would really love, it wouldn't be Bourdais, by the way. I love Seb, obviously, but uh, he's not the easiest on his race engineers. I would love to work with Colton Herta. I'm fascinated by him. Fascinated by him from a driver engineering standpoint because it looks like the kid is almost a miracle worker. He should not know things that he does. He should not be able to do things that he's able to do with his race engineer, Nathan O'Rourke, just the kid is so stupidly good at such a young age that I'd love to just experience that working with him. 
we know he would go backwards as a result of having me. But regardless, I just love to see his working style and thought process, just true one-on-one eye to eye from a race engineer driver standpoint. I mean, there, of course I'd love to work with Dixon and see what, you know, figure out some of the things that makes him so unique power. Again, I worked down the list. Pagano, I'd love to work with knowing how technically minded he is, but there's a little bit of black art mystery. I don't know what with Colton. And I'd definitely love to get in there for a weekend and see, uh, get a feel for what truly makes him so good. All right. We're going to go back to Ryan Terpstra again, who sent in 47 questions. Last one. I promise this one presented by mold. That's our new fake sponsor Miller's outdated led depot. That being the place to send your broken IndyCar led panels. Can we show some respect on social media? At the very least, if you want to be critical, don't tag the person. Certainly don't make it personal. I think Ryan's referring to folks that sent a lot of not nice things to Graham Rahal, possibly Ryan Hunter as well. No disagreement, nor do our sponsors at Mold disagree with your point here, Ryan. Certainly would be silly, though, for me to not mention that I believe for whatever percentage of folks who engage in social media, it is certainly viewed as a blood sport. And while I assume those folks do not walk up to people and say, hey, you're fat, you're stupid, you're ugly in their, call it real lives, they certainly are able to be that, in their mind, uh, butt-kicking badass from a smartphone tablet or keyboard um so yeah i i hear what you're saying i just think that for a pretty solid number of people social media is a place to be a badass and to talk crap and to never really worry about the repercussions so love the earthy oat grain granola vegan snowflake-ish approach here. I assume those are all things folks might associate with such a notion here, Ryan. Apologize if I'm wrong. But yeah, bottom line is, hey, why can't folks be nicer on social media? Well, up there with hunger and cancer and, and global warming, yeah, there's a lot of things we're still trying to solve. And this one might be at the top of the list of impossibilities. Next, and I'm just going to keep saying this, our man Jim Johnstone, the person who coined the acronym SPAM, sends in one, says, do you think Connor Daly's call-up was just a matter of convenience since he's always mulling about the IndyCar paddock, or can this be looked at as a trial by fire for next year's open seat at SPAM? Uh, Also, whatever you did to get the cartoon anvil to move away from RHR, did you really need to push it directly over Hinch? Good point, but again, Ryan became the cartoon anvil for Jack Harvey. So, yeah, I think I messed up there, Jim. Uh, I would say no on the Connor front. Uh, If we're talking about uh, Aeroschmidt Peterson Motorsports, Aero McLaren SP, soon to be, which we lovingly refer to as spam, I would have to say no, simply because Connor is certainly no stranger to the Schmidt team 
spent at least a partial season with them in 2011, I believe, won a race for them in Indy Lights. Uh, definitely is someone who then got the call up for the injured James Hinchcliffe at the 2015 Indy 500, did a handful of races for them. I think got a sixth or something like that at Detroit. So certainly not an unfamiliar face for them. I don't think that there's anything there in terms of a tryout. I think they know what they would get. I'm hoping they know what they'd get is someone who with serious budget and engineering resources to work from. I think Connor would be ready to be a very consistent top 10 guy next year. So I think it's more who is the best we can get who is available compared to any other, Hey, we're going to take a look at uh, what's going on you know, and possibly signing someone for next season. Don't believe that they are affiliated, but also don't think they really need a whole lot more to determine that, you know, this guy might actually be a perfect fit for us to try out in our first year together as spam. Jamie Carr says, I really enjoy the road to Indy interviews here on the week in IndyCar. He says with some of the drivers, it's apparent that they have been interviewed a lot or, or are still not comfortable with the process. He says, with that said, are there any drivers that come to mind that was a bad interview that is now good or one of your favorites? I mean, the one that comes to mind directly is Alexander Rossi. Uh, at least when he came in to IndyCar, you know, a lot, a lot of kind of shoegazing, not a whole lot to say. I don't think that, I don't say that in any kind of personal or negative way. I just think coming from Europe where he'd been in a very regimented and cold system he's spoken about that being the case many times still think he was adjusting getting a a feel trying to read the room and understand how things went here and i love a lot of his interviews now and i hear from folks uh fellow reporters who say man (laughs) it's a blast listening to the guy and he'll throw in some little digs here there or you know he's a fun, subver- subversive, and sneaky interview sometimes. And uh, he won't hesitate to push back, but he won't do it necessarily in a big, overt way. So I would absolutely say Rossi's become a lot of fun, Jamie. So uh, thumbs up there. Caleb Gerald. Any news or hints regarding Marco Andretti maybe retiring uh, from driving full-time and moving into an ownership role, maybe just racing at Indy, I've felt like this is possible, but you all have better access behind the scenes stuff that we don't see. Maybe move up a lights driver into his seat. So called Brian Herta, who is the team owner for the car that Marco drives and said, Hey, had a couple people of late ask if Marco might be retiring based on the dreadful season he has had and dreadful many seasons, to be honest, to which he said, Nope. He will absolutely be in the car next year, and we're really, really looking forward to it. We can also say that Marco was on a really good run last weekend. So uh, the answer is no. Marco will be back. Let's go to at D. Rudell. Happy Labor Day. This is on one of the broadcasts. Catherine Legg seemed to imply that she might be driving at Indy next year. Is there something in the works with Meyer Shank? Would love to see her out there. 
definitely been something they've tried to do more than once. And I think that there is a continual desire to make that happen. So we'll just say, watch this space. Colin Young says, I'm heading to WeatherTech Raceway for both IMSA and IndyCar weekends. Tips for viewing areas around the track. Also, are there any good memorabilia shops in the area? On the latter, Colin, not that I know of. That's something that has dwindled, unfortunately, over the last 10 or 15 years. As for viewing spots, yes, that's the very basic answer. Uh, There's a lot of amazing spots to watch. What I would recommend on your first day there for the IMSA event pretty easy to get around the place it's not giant would say that wherever you see a lot of folks sitting in grandstands well you're not going to see a lot of folks sitting in grandstands wherever you see grandstands something to see there okay definitely not a big recommendation though because at least for how i enjoy the circuit it's very much a touring and walking circuit from the infield you can see some cool-ish things if we're talking about walking up on the hill and heading towards the corkscrew you can only see the corkscrew from the inside outside of it is not accessible to fans so getting up on the hill you can see some pretty cool stuff there beautiful take a lot of pictures for sure if you're bringing a camera you're going to want something with a zoom lens you know something 200 millimeters general range and probably something smaller, 50-ish. Get up on the hill. It's beautiful. Walk around a bit there. Outside, though, is also really awesome. We're talking going across the start-finish bridge, and you would go across that. If you're in the infield, you go across that and hang a left. Then you can walk around the outside of the track, turn one, turn two, some really good viewing areas in there, and keep going. And keep walking, head up towards turn five, turn six. Some beautiful things there, too. So definitely just say, go for a walk. Bring yourself some water, (laughs) some sunscreen. Walk around. Find some stuff that you like, knowing that you might not camp out there for hours, at least on your opening day. But that would be my suggestion. There's great stuff to see. You're not going to have a lack of great vantage points. Just would like you to go do that so you know and can then plan. All right, cool. Then tomorrow, I did like this view, so we're going to go watch for a couple hours there and so on. Last thing I'll mention, and it's just a reality, since it's not a giant circuit with a million corners, knowing that you're going to be there for both weekends, just know that, I don't want to say boredom is the word, but... There's only so many places to go. There's only only so many places to view from. If you work your way across the bridge up in the corkscrew, just the base of the corkscrew, and go across there, you can go to the outside going down the hill, down turn 9, turn 10, kind of a camping area. There's some interesting viewpoints from there as well. would just say... Walk around and document as much as you can. Find the things that you like early in the IMSA event and then pay those things out slowly because if you don't, um, probably by 
the race on Sunday for the IMSA weekend, you're going to feel like you've seen the whole place and know it all together. So you might just say, all right, well, I'm going to save this or that for later in the IMSA weekend or save this area for IndyCar. Or if you just love doing all things at all the time, all the times, then just run around and run around and go that way. Uh, let's go to Steven Straub. Hey, Steve says MP what's going on with Hunkos's IndyCar effort. Will we see them in 2020? I think so. I did see Ricky Ricardo Hunkos very briefly in Portland. He and I do need to catch up. I mean, they have cars. He did say that they are going to rebuild the crash cars. So I believe they will have them in good shape for next year. Can't tell you anything more than that yet. Cause I still need to catch up with them. Let's go to Darus Lar, a grumpy guy in a bear suit. Can we get a late season golden anvil? I like how we've merged golden bowling ball and cartoon anvil into golden anvil nomination for Connor Daly, both Iowa and gateway. He does his qualifying run on kitty litter after car blows up in turn one, then gets hosed by a late yellow during the race. Portland, he gets nailed by the Patriot missile known as Graham Ray Hall. Yeah. Um, luck of the Irish, huh? Yeah. Well, maybe it's cause he's half Irish. He's only half lucky, which I guess 50% luck might come in the form of a Patriot missile or kitty litter. I'm with you. <sighs> Overstating the obvious here. I would just love to see Connor Daly have a full season in IndyCar with a good and ready team and shake all the nonsense that has limited him, right? Being the super sub, nobody wants to do that. You'll do it to try and get your name, keep your name, something in the spotlight, but that, that that's not a way to exist. Uh, the luck as well. Yeah, misfortune has found him more often than it should. Um, I'd just love to see him have a reset year because I know he can be really, really good. I don't know if he's champion material. We haven't seen enough consistently from him to be able to make that assessment. But I do know for sure that he can be running towards the front, giving folks a really hard time and making a team happy. I'm totally convinced of that. Let's go to Acer Rub Rum. And I tried to figure out if that's some sort of anagram. It probably is. And I'm just not smart enough to figure it out. Tech question, how does an electric component like the new KERS system add power to the powertrain? Is there an electric motor tied into the transmission somehow? I don't really understand how the electric system is additive to the overall power to the rear wheels. The answer is yes. You have a motor generator unit, an MGU that spins generates electricity that electric power is stored often in a battery could be a supercapacitor, could be a flywheel is then on demand sent back to those motor generator units or unit and helps spin whether it's the front tires in prototypes or rear tires in formula one and what will be indycar so yes 
It is no real different than the guy on the bicycle riding the stationary bicycle with a belt to an electric motor generator unit to make electricity to power the light bulb. The only difference here is instead of it being just a light bulb, it's a battery that is storing what is being charged, and there's a mechanism to send that right back to the motor to spin the wheels instead of the person on the bicycle having to do it. So, yes, it is very much of a charge, hold, and release system back through the thing that captured it to begin with. Gary Petrie says, where's Mario? Really great to see Catherine Leg in the two-seater. Less exciting was Ari Jr. last week. But really, where is Mario? Is he okay? Doing well? Taking a break? I would just say that, yeah, you know, Mario isn't necessarily doing that every weekend. Um, he's doing just fine. One of my favorite things in life, <laughs> and it's silly, but... Mario, you know, I, I, I know I have an affinity for him. I believe he has some form of affinity for me. And usually when he and I see one another from a, a slight distance, uh, if I'll look over and see him, he'll see me uh, yeah, before I can wave or give him a nod or a smile or something. He'll shoot me the finger guns, the little bang, bang with his finger. It's the coolest thing in the world. I just love it. I'm like, look, Mario's giving me the finger guns again. I mean, that's it's freaking Mario Andretti. Give me the little bang, bang finger gun thing. Um, yeah, I just love it. So, yeah, he's just fine, man. He's, he's doing great. Heather Brown. Thanks, Heather, for sending this in. And I love the fact that it is two-pronged and representing the Brown family. Heather says, okay, I have one, and then my husband has one. She says, my question, in listening to all of Takuma Sato's interviews after the crash at Pocono, it seems that he really does not want to take responsibility for causing a crash, just a parent's observation. So I was wondering, has there ever been any consideration by Indy to have those drivers and teams that are found at fault of causing a crash to pay for the damages uh, made to the to the other cars in the crash. Like back at Pocono, Rosenquist had hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages to his car that they had to pay for. If Sato caused a crash on a regular city street and was found at fault, he would have to pay the damages. My thought is if drivers and teams had to pay for damages they cause, it might deter some from making crazy moves on lap one of a race. Keep in mind, I'm only talking about those uh, where Indy issues, penalties, possibly for avoiding contact and such. I like that. <laughs> I do I do like the idea of the, if you broke it, you pay for it. It would, Heather, be a little bit... I don't think you could do this in a true automatic fashion. Meaning that if, just make up, say, rear suspension component broke on Takuma's car and caused it to turn into Rossi. He had nothing to do with it. Something broke, goes into the wall, cars get cars get battered and whatnot. It can be hard to go and look at all the wreckage afterwards and say, aha, I see that broke before the crash compared to after. Could a driver claim, I, I didn't do that again, something broke, wasn't me, 
when indeed they know staring at piles of, of battered and destroyed suspension, you could probably pawn it off on that. Um, not saying that there aren't ways you couldn't try and discern. You could look at the data acquisition, see if they turn the steering wheel or not, so on and so forth. I like the general premise here of if you broke it, you pay for it. My concern, though, would be that depending on some of the drivers, if we come back to Connor Daly, if by chance he made a big mistake and trashed a bunch of cars, I don't think he'd ever drive an Indy car again. And he would be working at <laughs> Subway Sandwiches. He'd be an Uber driver. He would be a greeter at Walmart. Uh, the guy would be working for many, many years to try and pay this stuff off because we know for a fact he does not have the money to cover it. So I do love the idea, though. And I guess if you were to say we'll pass it on to the team, there are some teams that could be in jeopardy as well if they had to cover everything that their driver did. Still not sure I've come to exactly what we need to do, whether my one lap or two lap start in a hole penalty is really good or bad or dumb or smart. But I do like the idea that we're talking about this stuff. Maybe this is a great thing for y'all to send in more ideas next week. All right, let's think differently. What kind of penalties should be considered for stupid stuff that trashes the field, whether it's lap one, turn one at Portland, whether it is the first lap at Pocono. Get some more ideas coming in. Please send those in here and definitely look forward to reading them here soon. Heather then says, now to my husband's question. In recent podcasts, you've talked about some of the ways stories form through your relationships with sources. I'm curious if you have been given purposely bad info from, quote, reliable sources. For instance, Driver A tells you he's leaving Team X to drive for Team Y, yet Driver A never had any intention to leave but wanted to give that impression for salary negotiations with Team X. I would say absolutely, Heather. And that's something where, despite my spidey sense being alerted and trying to do my best to discern if Driver A when they call and say, hey, you know, um, thinking about leaving Team X, going to Y, whether it's true or that it is a negotiation ploy or there's some other form of pressure wanting to be applied. Absolutely. Not only do I keep that in the back of my head, but also I'm certain, although none come to mind right now, but I am positive I have failed that my spidey sense has not been raised at times when it should. And I have been used. It's, it's to be expected, not welcomed, but it's to be expected. Uh, coming back to my engineering background, numbers background, I would never expect to be a hundred percent in anything. So I'm sure whatever percentage, hopefully small uh, that, yeah, I have indeed been a, conduit that was used to benefit someone's agenda and it's probably happened very recently and i might not even know it yet uh, but yes absolutely um it's part of the thing right yeah you, you have to in order to do your job you, there has to be an element of trust there has to be a healthy distrust as well to try and vet things as best as you can 
run through the scenarios and angles you might conjure as to why a person's telling you this, etc. But yeah, uh, would certainly say I know uh, I have been a monkey that's been used more than once. So we start to wind down here. We are going to go to John Sable. Thanks for sending those in, by the way, Heather. John Sable says, hate that I don't have any questions for your guests. He says, Jack got run over doing a great job. Toby really kept his head in the game, showed maturity to finally close it out with a win. He says, anyways, for you, Marshall, I know we've talked about IndyCar having a throwback weekend like NASCAR has this past weekend at Darlington. He says, how about Portland next year? He says, with NBC as a partner, they could cross-promote a throwback weekend for both series. I'd like to think it's a win-win. Amen, Brother John. Uh, needs to happen, period. Let's go to Horatio Frey. Marshall, if a driver wins any lights championship, comes back and wins it again, do they get to keep the prize money twice and get to use it to move up to IndyCar? Well, I would say it would be strange to have someone win it, get that three race, including the Indy 500, roughly million-dollar prize package, use it, then go back to Indy Lights, win again, and get to use it again. Do I know of anything that says you can't win it more than once? No. I could be wrong, but I have not heard anything that says if you win it once, you can never win it again. I do think it'd be frowned upon, though, but I can't say that they would actually come back and go, yeah, I know you won, but nope, you're not getting a dime. Scott Imus says, MP Miller's comments in your post-race video had some merit about skipping the Portland chicane on lap one. Back in the later cart and champ car days, the Portland race broadcast always began with, will they make it through turn one? Obviously, these last couple of years have had the same theme. Mid-Ohio starts on the backstretch, surely making uh, sure the front of the field has a chance to build more speed to lengthen the line over the back couple of rows or rows can't hurt in trying to avoid a lap one turn one melee. Are you with Miller on this? Can we help the drivers about their own brain fade? I, I don't believe so. And as you heard me yelling at the end of the Sunday race report video, and as I mentioned earlier, look, if a bunch of 17, 18 and 19 year olds, can go flying in there with the same lack of separation from the front of the grid to the back of the grid, and they don't wipe each other out. I got to believe the professionals who are being paid a lot of money can do the same. So I don't think removing the thing that people fail at is the solution. I think it's fail less, be better, uh, the old adage that someone mentioned about you can't win in the first lap, but you sure can lose again. It's been around forever, but it's been around for a reason. Um, I get how close and competitive IndyCar is, how the margins are so slim. I also don't believe that that then becomes an excuse for just insane levels of aggression or taking huge risks um, yeah, I realize that if you don't push every margin and all the boundaries, you might miss a pass or two. I get that. I'm not making light of that at all. But man, I can tell you one thing. 
the sponsors that pay to be on those cars, they also aren't paying to see your car crashed and trashed in lap one and then never again for the rest of the broadcast. So does finishing fifth instead of fourth, being on track for 105 laps, having sponsors that say, great, we were at the track, we had guests, we got to watch you the entire time. I know it's a really hard thing to balance, but I don't buy the fact that it can't be done. So, yeah, I mean, and trust me, uh, my first couple of visits there at Portland, the chicane, actually it might have been more than a couple. The chicane never existed. Everyone went rocketing down the front straight, hung a right, and went about the infield. No chicane at all. Uh, we've seen folks crash at turn one, lap one chicanes throughout the world in all kinds of series. I get it. It's not unique to IndyCar, but I just... I don't want to give a lot of credence to things that become so close that, oh, if you don't take a every, every chance to get by somebody, then you're just never going to be able to do it again. As another listener wrote, there was a lot of passing throughout the race in places we didn't expect. So that maybe takes any strength away from that argument at Portland, at least even more. So no, my fear is, though, like we did at Pocono, where everyone seeming I shouldn't say everyone, some seemingly forgot what happened the year before with Robert. Uh, my fear is we're going to come back to Portland next year, and it's going to be complete amnesia about what just took place. Uh, Scott also says, was your, quote, incentive-based sponsorship idea of two weeks ago prescient regarding ABC and Foyt? I will admit to having them in mind, Scott. And we'll also mention, which I think I did earlier, that the ABC might be going away thing. It's not a new thing. Uh, it was just recently turned into a, and it's formally happening thing, which led to us chasing that down. Uh, let's see. Let's go to our pal Jeremiah Morell, our winner of the Scott, Scott Daily. Oh, man. I have no excuses. I actually got some pretty good sleep last night. Um, I've had coffee. I don't know. Uh, my brain and my mouth, <laughs> I guess they're in a fight. Uh, there's stress in the relationship. Someone needs a timeout. Someone has to go sleep on the couch, maybe. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I've edited out about five of these word, mouth, face things that aren't working so far and just kept in some others. So I'm sorry here. We're getting towards the end. I don't know if that means anything. Rocky's just walked by. Hey, buddy. Thanks, pal. Um great to have you right in front of me here blocking everything uh between rocky's tail okay there we go thanks pal we have jeremiah asking i know it's insane but can we float the idea of indycar darlington similar shaped track as gateway a little more banking heart of nascar country if they can go to richmond and eat ovals let's go to darlington 100 percent with you jeremiah I think as IndyCar starts to whittle down what works for them in terms of tracks, audiences, response, and such, there will come a point where it's going to be one of two things. We either try and come up with a new street race somewhere to put ourselves in front of a, quote, new audience, or maybe we need to see if there are some familiar circuits that are not traditional IndyCar joints and go play in front of them. 
I don't know if this is possible. I don't know who owns Darlington. Uh, if there's any potential problems with NASCAR getting in the way or whomever. I love the idea though. IndyCar Darlington, that would be completely insane. Andrew Marshall says, I've been a huge fan of Graham Rahal since his Atlantic days, but the past two years reminds me of his 2013 and 2014 seasons at Chip Ganassi Racing, where Graham was nowhere. And I think you meant to say struggling for pace. You said strangling for pace. That could be actually most apt word. I was hoping you have more insight into what is going on with Graham and why his former race engineer, Eddie Jones, is not his engineer any anymore. It just seems weird that RLL split Eddie and Graham up after three good years and having Graham have two new engineers in as many years. Yeah, well, the team privately, and it's not an admission they would need to make publicly, but they have acknowledged that um, the experiment of moving Eddie off of Graham's timing stand and over to two Takumas, while it certainly benefited Takuma, who has won, what, three couple times now? Um, Graham has not been as fortunate. And so having Tom German as his race engineer last year, there were some good vibes, but I think there was an understanding that maybe all the chemistry is, isn't there. So Tom's been moved into more of an R&D role. This year, Alan McDonald, good old squirrel, has come over from the Schmidt-Peterson outfit and I think he and Graham do very well. Where I think there's a need, Andrew, is that it just stands out now that they really are, they could really use a technical director, someone on high that is going to lead them down R&D paths that will make the team more competitive overall. And knowing that Takuma was a beast at Barber Motorsports Park, won that. I mean, he was the man. That was great. We just haven't seen many days. Even knowing that Takuma won at Gateway, he was not in a position to win on outright pace. Uh, the team has not looked like it has been truly ready to vie for multiple wins this year on outright pace alone. So I definitely think, Andrew, if I am RLL, and I am looking to the off-season, I am making a lot of calls, if not already making inquiries. Hey, a really big, big brain person, how can we get you to come over here and set policy and set practices and explorations from a top-down standpoint that would benefit both cars? That's a lot different than just having really good race engineers. Eddie Jones, Alan McDonald, they're going to get a lot out of their cars. They're going to give their drivers very good cars. But if they are behind as a team to the others in the paddock who maybe have full-time technical directors who have found some advantages to then share with those engineers and drivers, they're going to be behind. Let's go to Bob Fay. Hey there, Bob. Marshall, how confident are you to hear Mark Miles say that the series will get back to the Northeast at some point? Is it really a priority? as the turnout at Pocono and Watkins Glen and Loudoun were light for the most part. Where else up here could safely host an IndyCar event? Says, thanks as always for your passion for my favorite sport. I hate to say I don't know, Bob. 
but I truly don't know. Uh, again, I, I love hearing that Mark knows IndyCar needs to maintain, create, and or maintain a presence in the Northeast. I would say Watkins is really the only one that stands out as something that could work. What I would say is I've heard there have been efforts on IndyCar's behalf reaching out to IMSA saying, you know, I keep hearing folks really would like the idea if we race together more often, what do you think? There hasn't been a lot of uh, positive response. I know that, as we discussed just a little while ago, although there's a conflict now, between Richmond and the Watkins IMSA race next year. Would just say, imagine going to the, I don't know how many hours of Watkins Glen, but something that absolutely take both series, put them on track, uh, offer fans an amazing IMSA and IndyCar weekend on a natural terrain road course. We know that they get together for two street courses. That's fine. That's good. But actual IMSA sports cars and Indy cars on the same date at Watkins, IMSA doesn't exactly pack that place as well. Um, So maybe having both, maybe giving fans a true great doubleheader weekend, that's the thing that comes to mind for me, Bob, where I would believe Watkins would do fairly well and I think benefit both series more than them going there individually. Chris Ward says it was almost a throwaway comment, but made mention of CGR wanting drivers to participate in both Coda and Sebring. Is there more to that? I believe you're referencing Chip Ganassi's quote to Robin Miller. I believe that CGR wants to make sure that if something were to happen, that the door is open to have Sebring with IMSA and potentially who knows some of their IndyCar drivers involved, not necessarily this being a revealing that, Oh, we got something. And that's why we were trying to work really hard to make sure there was no conflict between IndyCar at Coda and Sebring. I think it's just more being smart and looking ahead in anticipation. Chris, I know that for a fact, Simon Rafi says MP what happened to Alex Lloyd's IndyCar career. I heard he walked away from a Ganassi contract and he's now a journalist. But what happened in between? From what I remember, he was a very talented driver. He was indeed, Simon. I remember that year, I believe, where he shared a car with Simon. Simon, could see again. No idea what's wrong with me. Uh, with Sebastian Bourdais at Dale Coin Racing. 2011, I believe, was the year. Maybe it was 2010. Who knows? Uh, I think Alex just realized that he could either keep toiling away trying to make select starts happen in IndyCar or he could get on with life and would say that he is indeed very talented with a keyboard. I don't know the full story. Maybe this would be a great podcast for the offseason. Let's go to Jordan Darwin again. Says MP, I think Foyt should look at a technical partner to flatten their learning curve. Spam looks like their best option. Agree or disagree? I would say that if it were not for the introduction of McLaren, say that Aero SPM was headed to Chevy and it was not involving McLaren, I think that would be perfect. We know that the Shank team 
Honda affiliated won't be back. I think this would work very well to Foyt's benefit, but I believe with McLaren involved, they are not so inclined to extend themselves in that kind of way. Could be wrong, but I, I love the idea. I just don't think that AeroSPM's new partner is going to be one looking to benefit other teams uh, going forward. All right, we're down to two questions. Brett Ross, penultimate is yours. Hi, MP. Here's my question from last week again. If you were to make a basketball team with IndyCar drivers, who would you pick to be your starting five and who would be the coach? I think the coach answer, really simple. I think it would be really simple. That'd be Tim Sendrick. Not only do we know of his vast talents on the timing stand, I believe he might have played some college ball or something like that. He's definitely a taller cat. I think there's something in there, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, as for the starting five, I love my listeners. I, seriously, you guys are the best. All right, so Takuma Sato, not on the team. Uh, Zach Veach, not on the team. Marco Andretti, not on the team. Realize that height alone is not the only thing that you want, but let me try and think about, I think New Garden's going to be in there. He's not crazy tall, but he does have an athletic build, so I think he's going to be there for sure. We know he's going to be wearing a big old mouth guard too, so that's going to look awesome. Where do we go? Hunter Ray? I don't know if he's super at least these days. I don't know if he's super agile. I'm not saying he isn't. I just don't know if he is. But, you know, he's got a little bit of size to him as well. Could be that four spot. I don't know about five, but maybe the four. Let's see. Who would be, again, we can't all just go on height. We can't have five centers. Borde's not there for sure. I mean, I was going to say Ray Hall, but, again, I... I I think he's the tallest of all the IndyCar drivers, so maybe he'd be the five. Just, again, I'm not seeing him doing a lot of wind sprints to run down to the other end and defend, but who knows? Again, could be wrong. Where else do we go? Kind of point guard, shooting guard, something in there. Huh. Man, this is maybe it. You might be, Brett, exposing a hole in IndyCar's drivers. Again, some of the taller ones, knowing they're kind of fit that four or five-ish roll, clog the paint, do something. All right, got it. But, the you know, a little bit smaller, but agile, deft, really, you know, slick hands, balance, change of direction. Where do we go here? I love Hinch. I don't think it's Hinch. Um, Colton? I don't know. I mean, he's, he's pretty wiry. Maybe. Piggott comes to mind, maybe, right? Piggott might be in there somewhere. Uh, boy, I'm struggling here. All right, I know he's not a full-timer. I'll throw in Sage Karam. He might be the most athletic of all IndyCar drivers. Okay, he only does one race a year. Maybe Hildebrand, right? I mean, he's you know a true athlete among the drivers. Yeah, but at least in terms of full-timers, I'm trying to think of someone who might have a good shot as well. Um, I mean, you might say power. He's on pole position all the time, right? But he's also not always the most consistent guy, so he might be clanking things off the rim. 
I don't know if Scott Dixon has ever seen a basketball. Pagano, it's, that's a cute idea. All right, I'm sleeping here. This is totally my fault. Rossi. I think Rossi might be shooting guard he, somewhere in there. Um, yeah, so starting five, I know I've mentioned a lot. Uh, I'd say Newgarden and Rossi for sure. Hunter Ray would be in there. Still a little bit on the fence about Ray Hall. I think Colton, Colton and or Piggott somewhere in there too. So somewhere in that general range. I know Karam, well, since he's not a full-timer, what, he'd come off the bench. Same with Hildebrand. So somewhere in that area. But it really does point out, granted, I know it might sound funny coming from my fat ass, but I have spent the majority of my life playing basketball. Uh, I'm not a bad shot. I'm certainly not going to beat anybody from uh, from coast to coast here, chasing people down these days at least. But it might be fun to organize a half-court IndyCar driver basketball game. I think we'd suck, and I think it would take about 12 hours to get to pick whatever arbitrary point. First to 20 wins, first to 30 wins. It might take a long time. I'd probably have Miller on my team too. That guy, believe it or not, uh, I think he'd be an asset. So thanks for your uh, the question here. Penultimate question of the week, Brett. Let's go to the final one. It's also brought to us by our new fake sponsor, Miller's Outdated LED Depot. That's mold. It's a long one here. Uh, it's more of a uh, more of a dissertation. So as I do encourage, send these in too. Questions, I love them. If you also have opinions and ideas, send those in too. So I save mics for last. So sorry about the novel, but Portland's my home track, so it's hard not to go all out. Where to start? First and foremost, it was awesome to have you back at the track. Couldn't resist giving you that big bear hug. Thanks again, Mike. That was sweet. It says the MP Live podcast was awesome. It seemed like quite a few fans were attendance. I'd love to hear about numbers for ticket sales. He says, from what I recall, all RV spots and parking was sold out. I ran into many people that traveled from Canada, Seattle, and more. All signs point to good attendance. He says, I met a lot of newer fans, but was especially impressed by the volume of diehard fans wearing classic IndyCar and Champ Car attire. He says, here's my soapbox moment. The primary beer vendor was pushing Coors and Coors Light in Portland. Portland, Oregon has more breweries in its city limits than any other city in the world. I think someone forgot to do a bit of market research. And wouldn't it make sense to get one of the bigger local or regional brands as a sponsor or provider for this kind of thing anyways? Second point, for a track in the city, Portland International Raceway has horrible cell signal. Can't argue there. It's like a mini black hole with some weak signal at the far, far west in the turn 4 through 7 area been a problem for a long time even when verizon was the series sponsor last year uh, it was just as bad he says what makes this especially frustrating is that there is no way to get track commentary without streaming it over the internet existing speakers are useless due to the noise of the cars going by especially when spread out on the track and they don't have a local am or fm broadcast it says i was limited to one area of the track where i could actually use the indycar app and listen to ims radio is this a problem other tracks in the country have as well? Why doesn't a series like IndyCar and their technology sponsor NTT Data do something to improve this 
for the race weekend. He goes on to say, Robin Miller mentioned in your hamburger and French fry post-race show about allowing cars to go straight, bypassing the Monty Shelton curve, turn one, and then use uh, the normal route from then on. He says, I see his point, but the challenge would be, how do you put the chicane penalty back in place to force them to slow down the cars after they all get through in lap one? It's an interesting idea, but just as he was stating Stating it, the young kids in USF 2000 showed they can have cooler heads and make it through the curves successfully in lap one. Is this really just a case like Pocono in that it's so wide there's too much temptation for opportunities that don't exist? He said Colton Herta proved that if you have a good car and good strategy, you can still move up at a place like Portland. Heck, especially Indy Lights championship leader Oliver Askew, who did a brilliant drive to third on Sunday in Indy Lights did it after being at the back after a turn one incident. He says, there's more, but I wanted to leave with one last comment. Great job by the NBCSN crew, NBC sports gang on showing some of the great history of PIR, which was once the community of Vanport says victory Boulevard, which is part of the track itself was not named because of the racing, but because that was the area where they built the victory class cargo ships that carried supplies around the globe during World War II. The town was destroyed by a dike failure during a flood in 1948. It's a great story, and it was neat to see the old photos of what it looked like there before the track was built and placed on television. It says, as for Jack Harvey, I felt so bad for him and Mike Shank. I know both Ryan Hunter and Graham have had their lackluster seasons, but it doesn't mean... They shouldn't take. They should take others out in their frustration, because I know it wasn't intentional. But it just felt like they couldn't see beyond their small area of space on the track immediately around them, and didn't think how their desperation decisions would potentially affect others. Says so Zach Veach on IMS Radio gets the best smack quote talk of the weekend. In regards to the first incident, it was something like quote It's interesting that those that seem to complain the most about what others are doing on track are often the ones creating the problem. So cheers to all. Thanks, Mike. Great again to see you. Always love to get the diehard fans, the locals, to weigh in here about the events we come from. Obviously, a lot of the things that you saw and experienced, I did not. The weak sell signal for sure, but just do love hearing from a fan's perspective about the things that really worked, that they liked. Also, the shortcomings, because if the races are going to get better, be more enjoyable, and grow, this is the exact kind of feedback we need to offer. So, thanks for sending that in, Mike. Held that to the end of the show here, because it was, as you mentioned, a bit of a novel, but welcomed nonetheless. Rocky has just jumped up again, giving me a snide look, because he wants to be fed. It's one thirty-five on a Wednesday afternoon. I need to go feed him, so he doesn't eat me. Then I need to post this, then get out the door and go spend the rest of the day with my wife. So thank you for sending all of this in. I apologize for the length of the show, but it is more than three hours. Uh, So yes, splitting it into two was the smartest thing I could think of. So we not only have a two-part Q&A, we also have the primary show. So hopefully across all three, (laughs) you've enjoyed a lot of IndyCar content here on the Week in IndyCar, brought to you by Cooper Tires. The Justice Brothers, our dear, dear friends at TorontoMotorsports.com, will be giving away a prize pack to whomever's question 
or comment from this week receives the most likes on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page and to our super good pals at Bell Racing Helmets USA. We'll look forward to speaking to you next week.